You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the initiative that has to do with the group formerly known as the Avengers as we talk about new people who possibly could be Avengers. And with me is John Mills. I think that's an appropriately government bureaucratic way of stating something. So I think that's valid. (laughs) You know, we just have to come up with an acronym for every letter that you just said. So drop Matt a line on social media and let him know what the acronym for that government agency would be. Well, you know what's great is that Twitter, if you're a Twitter blue person, just add, I think, 4,000 characters you can use. So that would be helpful for that acronym because now, we're going to need that many letters. Now, I Matt, just, just to ask the philosophical question, aren't all of us who are using Twitter blue? I mean, come on now. <laughs> Thank you and good night. I will be uh, silent for the rest of the show. He'll be here all week, folks. Don't forget to tip your waitress, eat the veal. Uh, But you can find us all over the place on social media. We'd love to talk to you at the 602 Club on Twitter and, of course, on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We've on Facebook with the entire network, facebook.com slash trek.fm. We're online at trek.fm. Of course, you could support us over at Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm, which is very important. Uh, We've got some bonus shows that are going on there as well. You can find the VIP room. Uh, Christy and I have dropped an episode there, and we're going to continue to do that this year and throughout the years, and we just appreciate your support. So we give back to you, and we hope that you'll support us so we can keep all of these podcasts coming to you. And, of course, Wherever you're listening to this, subscribe so you get the show as soon as it drops. And give us a star rating review. Five stars is great over there on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That would be awesome. So, John, this is a movie that I know that you just watched because you hadn't seen much in Phase 4. True. Uh, And so I'm just wondering, though, I know you kind of have a vast uh, knowledge of different comics, Marvel and DC and so I'm wondering, just kind of coming into this, if you had uh, any previous experience with the comics, with Shang-Chi coming into this, that had, you know, you one way or the other, if you were excited at all about the idea of them bringing this character, the the, or if it was just one that you kind of missed throughout the years. My brother had Shang-Chi comics, and Shang-Chi, look... Hey, I'm sure everybody realizes this, but if you're listening and all you've encountered with comic books is movies and stuff like that, Marvel was the absolute champ at reading cultural trends. And it's it's sort of like watching pro wrestling back in the day, right? Who were the big, you know, the the, the USSR were, was the big cultural villain that we had. Therefore, you had like people like Nikolai Volkov in the ring and stuff like that. And you had Sergeant Slaughter because you had the the good guy American and stuff. And so in the 70s in America, there was a huge martial arts craze, and Shang-Chi sort of tapped into that as a comic book. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that the comic wasn't good. I'm just saying, like, it was part of the zeitgeist there, right? And um, – or, you know, whatever. It, it, basically, it, it taps into that that whole thing, right? That Bruce Lee vibe that's still with us to this day. And um, 
it was it was a fine comic. It was interesting. You know, um, I remember at least one cover was, you know, really good. It was, you know, decent art and everything, but I was never like a big fan of it. My brother would have had it in his collection just because, you know, he was make mine Marvel. He was a big Marvel guy. He collected DC as well, but, you know, stuff like the X-Men and Spider-Man, those were like his primary jam for everything. Although he did love the Hulk, but um, was I excited about it? No. And the specific reason is because I viewed this as a fairly clear signal that Marvel was hitting. They they weren't in the major league hero characters anymore. They were they were calling people up from the minors. They might have been top level minors, but, you know, this was the farm team is starting to show up at this point. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's definitely really interesting. Uh, you know, I, this is not a character that I really knew much about. Uh, and in all honesty, I remember seeing the trailers and thinking to myself, oh man, this just, there was something about the trailers themselves that did not sell this movie very well to me. Uh, and so going in, I had very low expectations. Um, if like zero in the sense of like, I have no idea what to expect for this. And, so I don't really know if, you know, this is, is going to be good. And I I wanted to ask you this because this is uh, something that was really fascinating was thinking back about this movie as I was rewatching. I was like, this is the first time that Phase 4 gave us an origin story mm-hmm. uh, for anyone. The last time that we had had an origin story for anybody had been Captain Marvel. And that had been quite some time ago. Captain Marvel came out in 2019. Uh, This movie comes out in 2021. So, you know, everything else in the Marvel Universe had been about uh, kind of creating stories based around things that and characters we already knew. And in many ways, this is the first thing that's really introducing to us something new. Before you yell at your podcast, I know Black Widow gave us her sister, but that wasn't really necessarily a whole movie just about introducing something completely new to us. And so I wanted to ask you, as we come in then to this this first introduction to the character uh, here and first introduction to a new character, really, uh, in Phase 4, where we've got a whole movie dedicated to them, and they're part of the MCU that we haven't spent a lot of time in. Do you feel like that they do a good job of giving us an introduction? Reasonably well. I I think that um, I will give them credit that this is this is a more you know it, it's just a more refined origin story approach like this is this is marvel giving an origin story after they've had a few films under their belt like you look at phase one oh sure yeah and for as great as so many of those are in phase one you know captain america the first avenger this is this is a franchise still sort of sorting itself out what exactly are we here this is a franchise who Mm -hmm. knows how to deliver and please audiences delivering an origin story they they know the tricks now they're 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 not in their training wheels stage. They're saying, "Hey, we know this. This is sort. This is in a large sense like Doctor Strange. 
Doctor Strange benefits from all of the lessons they learned coming up to there. Okay, this is what audiences are going to reply to best. This is the type of journey they expect. And how can we meet expectations and at the same time make it, you know, uh, fun and a little fresh? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because – and I liked that you pulled Doctor Strange because in many ways I feel almost as though that was the last time – we were truly introduced to a new part of the MCU world like that. Um, you know, I mean, we, I guess, you know, we had also had Black Panther, so that had done it very well um, of, of, of kind of like introducing a new segment of, of the MCU. But in, in a lot of ways, this has a lot of similarities, I think, more to Doctor Strange because... It's an it's a new area of the MCU. You know, we're diving into uh, magic again, but this idea of kind of like uh, you know Chinese mythology, uh, we're using that, um, which I think is you know it's like a whole new area. It, it's like we've opened up a new window mm. in the Marvel house, and. Um, it opens up a, a, a lot of different areas then for us to be able to explore in, in, in many ways, I think, um, the way that Doctor Strange does. Because, two, uh, you know, the uh, Talo is actually in a different dimension, kind of like, you know, the magic that we pull in Doctor Strange. Right. So it's got a lot of those type of similarities. And so um, I, I really... I see this as, as I, I would say, I remember coming out of this for the first time in the movie theater and actually being quite impressed that it had felt like a long time before since Marvel had really given us anything, like they were introducing us to something new and that it felt interesting and it felt kind of fresh and fun and it wasn't overly worried about just connecting to everything else like they really i felt like this movie wanted to cement who these characters are what their world is like more so than it wanted to be like oh do you remember this from that last previous movie and the previous tv show that we did and you know like i felt like when it comes to like the origin story this movie was more focused on trying to give Shang-Chi and these characters their origin than it was anything else. And to me, you know, it, it felt like it had been a while since that had happened in the MCU. Yeah. See, th there's a flip side, and I, I, won't, I won't go there yet, but th there's a flip side to it that I think works against the movie. But I will say that what is fresh about it is that it, has ambitions to be uh, to be something new for everybody to say, hey, this is a formula, but we're going to put a spin on these things and draw from some other places. For instance, I think that, you know, the opening when, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the mom and the dad fall in love, you know, that this is the story of your mom and dad falling in love sort of thing. There's a very, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon vibe sort of laid down on Oh, it. yes. Yeah. But here's where it works against it. Being Marvel, part of the magic and the charm of Crouching Tiger was the fact that it was in an era where they were doing all of these wire foo stunts without 
the benefit of CG. And they don't do that here. And I think that carries forward as well. This is an origin story that's fresh yeah. and new. And the characters are like, I think Simu Lu and Aquafina, I think they're a lot of fun. I think that the casting in this movie is its greatest, greatest strength. Flip side of that is if this is an origin story that happens in phase one or even phase two, the first fight we see him in doesn't have magic flaming sword guy coming at him. That's all to say that what works against the movie and all of its attempts at freshness is that this is a Marvel franchise that is no longer interested in the build, but considering everything having been built beforehand. And so we start out a little bit early. There's, I think it's a little bit too fast how powerful the um, antagonists become uh, you know, in the movie. There's too much of a rush toward, you know, boss stage um, is sort of where I'd lay that. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think one of the things that I would ding the movie for, and I think you were kind of in in this vein there, is really the fact that this is a movie that needed its VFX to be flawless, because you don't want to see them. And there are too many places where the VF, the VFX become obvious. Uh, I think of the uh, bus scene specifically, uh, where it just never always looks consistent, at least. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, you don't have to be perfect. You just need to be consistent. And 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 the problem with, and we've talked about this many times, many of the Marvel movies is their lack of consistency. And we know the reason that is, is because they are pushing these VFX artists to do too much with too little time, and therefore you get these incongruities in the work. And And so, and this is a movie specifically, as you brought up like the fight scenes, and the choreography and everything, you need that to work seamlessly and never be pulled out when you see, oh, that shot just kind of like looks a little bit off. You need it to be perfect so that you're not pulled out of the magic of what they're trying to create. Because I think, like you said, they actually are trying to create, I think, something different and special and really have its own feel, much the way Black Panther was, where you have this whole world that you're a part of that you're kind of getting dumped into that same thing is they're trying to do that here. But I find myself because of sometimes less than perfect CGI work, I'm kind of pulled out of it. And that kind of ruins the moment. Well, I'm also going to throw in there that you have Shang-Chi exists in a time that earlier Marvel movies did not where you have, it's easy to pull the John Wick. John Wick uses a lot of CG to cheat out stuff, but it's so fast and so well sure. cut together that you, you know, John Wick movies are a thrill to watch. Three wasn't great, but you know what I'm saying. Like the, I mean, it's still enjoyable. The, the, it's just not as good as the other. Two. The action scenes are just nuts, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So you have an audience that isn't just a Marvel audience, but is has an expectation like you're talking about of seamlessness. 
that bus fight scene, and this is going to sound maybe dumb to some people, but you and I saw it uh, together, which is why I think of it. There's a bus fight in Nobody starring Bob Odenkirk. And I think what it is, is this is additionally a Marvel franchise that is used to throwing heaps of money and CG at things. Whereas you have a movie like Nobody where somebody has to sit there and say, you know, I have more limited means. I have to make this work look great. And I can't, I don't have as many cheats. And that bus scene in specific, one, I wish it hadn't been spoiled. I, like, they didn't they release that scene early or something like that? Because I remember seeing at least the bulk of the scene beforehand. Yeah, and it was on trailers yeah. and stuff. And I remember, so I remember watching it, yeah. it start and going, man, I, I wish I was coming at this fresh. But I saw a lot of this already. And that's, you know, I mean, that that's the trailer game sort of thing. But I think that that bus scene in specific, I think I'm fixating on it because that is some of the problems of the movie in microcosm where you have a ramp up of stakes very quickly. You have inconsistent CG and you have this, it winds up feeling a little bloated because this bus fight scene could have been about a quarter shorter, tighter focused and still ended with a funny moment. But there's a certain point of absurdity that you pass with this bus fight scene where you're like, okay, come on. You know, this is when I'm watching them do the crouching tiger thing in the very beginning, I'm like, oh, okay, this is a mythical thing. Maybe mom is embellishing, but I'm having fun watching this and we're dealing with magic rings and different realms and flying hats and stuff like that. But no matter how magical everything is going on right now, I have real people in a real bus in a real city. There is a line that you cross where you go, okay, guys, mm-hmm. this is yeah. this is a little far. You, you've asked too much of me here. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think that what in that scene specifically, it starts off great because I think the fight is small scale. And watching Shang have to find a way to fight this fight without hurting other people is fantastic by keeping it in that smaller scale. The moment that we kind of go over the top with it is the moment where you get lost. And, you know, and part of that is because it just doesn't look as good. The moment he jumps outside the bus, it doesn't look great. And so you get pulled out of the scene. And I I think that that scene itself could have been smaller because I think, in all honesty, the movie does kind of like want to build what it does with its fights till the very end. And this one just becomes so big and kind of so bloated, I think, like you mentioned, where it just it's just too much at the beginning. It's like you should have gone a little bit smaller and you would have been you would have benefited from that because you're still getting to show off G's skills, but you don't need to go so crazy that he's jumping on the outside of the bus and you know yes. all that jazz. Like again, just shorten it up a little bit, tighten it up a little bit, and it's a great fight. And additionally, instead of having the guy come at him right off the bat with magic sword thingy off of his arm, maybe cyborg arm, maybe magic arm, you know, like that sort of thing, have the guy lose his arm in this fight. 
So when he sees him later, that's when magic sword thing comes out. Nice. That's yeah. just that's just the law of escalation. Instead, we're starting at yeah. the point yep. that we should be getting to three quarters of the way through the movie. He's already at that boss level. And it's like that. Yeah. Yep. That's where it gets out of control. Well, and 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 the interesting thing is, and I just to kind of jump off that, like then we have the person who trained him in the past as a boss, and that never really goes anywhere throughout the film. You know, we kind of set that person up as like a fight that should be a big deal between Shang Chi and and his trainer in the mask. And mm-hmm. that doesn't go anywhere. Mm-mm. And so it's, the, again, I feel like you need to find a way to kind of rewrite some of these things or kind of tweak some of these things. Again, it's just small tweaks here and there that I think really add to it being um, even better. Now, you're a huge stickler for editing and especially the way the story works together. So this story does... The flashback at the beginning showing us how uh, when Wu becomes, you know, the leader of the Ten Rings and then, of course, meeting his uh, wife. And then what we do throughout the movie is we kind of flash back to different scenes to kind of fill us in fully on what happened. And I wanted to know how that worked for you and if you felt like they did a good job of putting in the flashbacks uh, and then if that helped the storytelling or if you felt like maybe they just needed to tell the story more linearly. Okay. There's no way you're going to tell the story linearly because it's just too big to handle that way. Sure. And this is where people will groan, eye roll, be angry at me, and I welcome your anger. Come after me, please. You won't. Nobody does. Nobody interacts with me on social media, and that's fine. I'm happier that way. You're happier that way. But on a scale of one to Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins of how to handle flashbacks and training sequences, because I do consider Nolan's Batman Begins as a gold standard of how to weave that together. That is, that's the pinnacle right there. The way that it effortlessly goes back and forth with Bruce's story when he's being trained by the League of Shadows and jumps around and and goes forward to where he has his crucible and stuff like that. That's just, that's what everybody, that's the dragon everybody is chasing. I would say that this is decent enough. It doesn't really break the flow, but it doesn't bring anything to me that is electric enough that I don't get a little a little antsy with the way it's 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 handled. It it doesn't move quickly enough. It doesn't intercut quite enough. Uh not intercut. It doesn't it doesn't move at at a rate that really holds with me. It it doesn't anger me. It doesn't disappoint me, but it's like, yeah, it's there. Okay. I know what you're doing. It, 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 so I I guess it's middle of the road with that. Yeah, I think that for me, it does a pretty decent job. And I think the only thing about this is that to me, the one thing, you know, that they do in the movie where, you know, they quote unquote hide the fact that he actually went through with the mission 
is mm-hmm. maybe one of the most obvious things in the world. Um, and I don't know how you necessarily fix that because to me it's that's the one where I'm just thinking to myself, okay, I I know exactly what's going to happen here, and you know, it, it it's part of the the fact that this is an origin story with this character, and it's it's very reminiscent of many origin stories that we've had throughout the years, and so um, where they have a past that has some darkness in it that they have to overcome. Mm-hmm. And so, but I, I thought that the intercutting was pretty well done. And, and part of that too, like, you know, obviously John, you and I are both huge fans of Iron Man three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought that this movie did a very good job of utilizing one of the small things that they pull from the MCU itself, which is the Mandarin use uh, in um, Iron Man three and here making the most of that. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that was a decent job. I agree. I do. I, 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 I don't know how to build off of that really, because this would, you know, there are things that this movie does well, and that's one of them. It works. It works well. And I like the fact that it leans into what is the quote unquote, most controversial aspect of Iron Man three. And it owns it. There are so many movies you and I have encountered through the years that try to discreetly distance themselves without disowning what came before. And this one says, no, that is a story point. That is what happened. And we're not backing off. We're, we're, we're giving more of that. And it works. And that's the highest compliment I can give it. Yeah. And I, I think that it helps that Ben Kingsley is Trevor Slattery is just hysterical in the film because he's he's such an oddball and he plays it to a t and makes the most of every moment that he has on screen which is pretty awesome well i Um, i I mean it gets back to the the stunt casting of of the olden days up you know i mean admittedly up through here when when you have an actor or an actress who's coming in and they know that they can just have fun and everybody's going to love what they do. It's like Helen Mirren showing up in the Fast and Furious franchise. That is yeah, that is yeah. somebody who's an absolute pro, who knows what they're doing. You know, darling, I've hit so many marks in my life that you know, like I I, I can't walk down this. If if you shout a direction on the on the street, I can give you a perfect performance, sort of thing. And so it's that effortless sort of sort of moment where you know that Kingsley walks on set. And he's like, I got this. Cool. Just tell me where to stand. I'll give you what you're looking for. And so, yeah, that, that's, I like the fact that they own it. Yeah, me too. No, I, I 100% agree with you. I remember seeing it for the first time and be like, that's great. Yeah. That's just so great. Uh, and, and then too, I think the beauty of it is the way in which, uh, you know, they, they have this thing where, you know, you thought you knew quote-unquote what the Ten Rings were, and the Ten Rings are so much worse than you thought they were in the sense of an organization and how they've been behind a bunch of things throughout the the universe that you don't realize. Uh, so I, I love that. Um, you mentioned earlier, and this is something that I think uh, you are 100% right on, is that the casting is just phenomenal in this film. Like, everyone on board here is great. Like, there's nobody in this film that I'm not on board with right. as an actor. 
And I think the beauty of this uh, too, and the, and the one person I just kind of want to call out because, you know, Aquafina has a reputation in many of her roles of is kind of being very much larger than life and over the top. But she gives such a great performance here where she does some of her kind of classic humor, but she really holds it back. And I think she gives a great emotional performance that supports everyone around her, especially, uh, you know, Shang-Chi. It's like that performance really supports that character and makes him feel more alive and real. And I was just very impressed because I, I remember when I, heard that she was cast i thought "Ooh, this might not be good and then to me she's the one who i think just knocks it out of the park and and everybody else is right there with her yeah i i um i know that aquafina didn't get a lot of um affectionate response for her performance but i agree with you i i I don't think that it's like an Oscar worthy performance, but no, I, no, no. But I do no. think. Oh no, I wasn't saying you said that. I'm just saying, you know, on a scale of of one to Oscar worthy, mm-hmm. she is what the movie needs. She has the energy to yeah. deliver the obligatory Marvel humor, but she makes it work. That's the trick, and that's why her performance is mm-hmm. good, is because she's performing in a role that we know we're going to get full of humor that we know we can expect. And so it's like knowing the magician's trick. Can you still be entertained by the show? And I think that she is a, uh, you know, a, a talented enough um, magician that I enjoy simply seeing her perform the trick. And for that reason, uh, she's what the movie needs. And I like her. I like the energy that she brings. I think that she brings out some good stuff from Simu Liu. I think that he, you can tell he's enjoying being in these scenes with her. And so I think I that that is a, that's an important thing. And it's, it really is. It's the, um, lack of a better way to state it. This isn't exactly what I'm going for, but this is just the best I can think of is it's like that, Batman and Robin thing. If you're going to have Robin, Robin better bring the best out of Batman that he can. And yeah, I agree. I think that this is one of those cases where the sidekick helps the hero shine a little bit better, shine a little bit more. I think if you subtract Aquafina, I think Simu Lu doesn't hit the same notes he doesn't have somebody to play yeah. against to challenge him to be where he needs to be mm-hmm. i agree i 100 percent agree with you I, I think that's it you know they they cast her uh and they had her do a lot of uh tests with different people uh for chemistry and i i think they just they got the chemistry right, you know. Um, I think of the the scenes where they're just having drinks with their friend, especially at the end, and they're telling the story and they're kind of playing off each other as they tell the story. And it, again, their relationship just feels so natural and wonderful. And I I kind of appreciate them too having this. You know, uh, by the end, you could tell that their relationship is deepened and probably become romantic, but that's not the focus of the film either. 
Uh, and so I think in all of this, they really just understand how to utilize these characters well. I would say the only thing that I wanted more of was, uh, you know, when you put Michelle Yeoh in a movie like this, sure. I want to see more of her just because it's Michelle Yeoh and I think of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and I just want her kicking some serious booty uh, because, you know, she was so great in that film. I I, I think Michelle Yeoh is... Um... Uh, this this sounds patronizing in a lot of ways, but I think she's great every time I see her. Uh, mm-hmm. She she has a a charisma that comes across screen, regardless of where she is. Even if the movie isn't particularly good, like the James Bond movie she was in, but like it's one of those things where it is, you know, is she utilized to the greatest effect? I don't know. I don't know if she is, but I do know that uh, I'll never think that she's uh, not great when I see her, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, I I did want to ask you about the, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that this is putting us into a whole new world uh, and, you know, we're, we're exploring, uh, you know, Chinese mysticism and mythology here uh, with these type of things. And so, you know, in, with them going to Talot and, you know, the Guardian and, you know, uh, all of these type of things, um, did that all work for you as, as a creation in the same way that, you know, we get dumped into Wakanda or the world of Doctor Strange Honestly, no. I was I was a little, you know, I would have saved it for the sequel, I guess, because we know we're going to get one. I would have kept more of the focus on like the present day, and and those sorts of things, um, and the real world, quote unquote, and left it as a tease for like I wouldn't have gone into as much, but that's just me. It's a it's an interesting question and I've been you know I've been thinking about it a lot especially as just kind of rewatching the film and I think you know I'm on the opposite side in the sense that I almost kind of wish that they had leaned more into that because that's what makes this story special in the MCU in the sense that it does allow us to be inside this whole new world mm. uh, and new part of the MCU. And that's, again, I think to me, I responded most when we were digging into the Shang-Chi mythology. Mm-hmm. And because, again, when you're doing the origin story uh, of, of this type of character, I, I, I personally, I guess I want what makes him stand out as opposed to every other character in the MCU. And, and, and to me, that's what uh, helps him differentiate himself, but from other Marvel cinematic heroes. But the, the angle I'm coming from is the angle of leave a little more for me to find out, leave a little more for him to, to discover like, Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. We're here in the first one. 
And then in the second one, the world gets larger. And we're like, wait, what? And then in the third one, it's a sense of, oh, wow, this is the full picture of everything that's been happening. Oh, I understand it all now. I think that we wind up victims of that impulse to cram as much into one as we possibly can. So I, I think to your point, I think what you know what what you're getting at is it comes down to a personal preference thing. Yeah, personal preference wise, yeah, I would I wouldn't have shown as much leg. But if it works for you, it works for you. Mm-hmm. Another another thing too, I wanted to ask you. You know, this movie definitely becomes the massive CGI fest at the end. Uh, with the battle we get, Ugh. and did uh, not that I hate it, but I did feel a little Force Awakens ish in the muddiness of the battle. Like the CGI yeah. never f- or, feels clear, <laughs> or even Rise of Skywalker ish, or even the terrible editing of the speeders going after the. Next generation Adat Walkers in uh in uh what was that terrible one? The Last Jedi, right? Like, yes, it's 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 Michael Bay syndrome. It's where am I? What's happening? I got shots. What's what huh? What? Why do I care? I I think that especially with, with how much film is out there and how savvy we all are to how things work it is a better play in a situation like this again to keep it small the way that and i'll make reference again to star wars empire strikes back we start really big and then we get small to a one-on-one fight Mm -hmm. and i think that would have been the way to go let's get small at the end and and keep the stakes very personal and very one to one you know instead of having that big kerfluffle for lack of a better term yeah i mean i think in all honesty that the biggest thing for me is just that it's it's muddy like everything mm-hmm. in that end, it feels like it has a film of mud over the lens and it's just kind of dark mm. and it's not really well distinguished. It, it's not well composited and, and it, it just like, yes. if it had just been clear, I think it would have been better in that sense. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think they do a decent job of that. You've got the, the, um, uh, village on one side and you've got the you know watcher in the darkness's lair on the other and then between there's water i don't necessarily feel lost i just feel like i'm i'm never getting a clear picture of anything that's happening because the cgi itself just feels like this um muddied mess right and so so we go to this this larger than it needs to be scale uh, that that feels a bit like the ending of Black Panther, where it's like, ugh, right? And the thing that makes that especially infuriating for me, especially infuriating for me, 
is that the director of photography is uh, is Bill Pope, who, to give an example of other films that he has shot, where there's no disappointment whatsoever, The Matrix, Baby Driver, mm-hmm. um, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 2, Army of Darkness, for uh, all you uh, true nerds out there, right? This is a guy... I mean, he did Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Right. This is a guy who knows what he's doing. I don't understand. I can't process why certain things visually break down, except to get to your earlier point. They're farming everything out. They got too much going on. There's always so much Bill Pope can control when it comes to those things. Well, and this is one of those places where... As we know with CGI is that when you're doing VFX, especially if you're going to have a massive set piece at the end, it is best if they know exactly what you want from the beginning so they can spend the entire production schedule working on it so it looks perfect by the end. Marvel doesn't do that, we know. In fact, Marvel many a times is changing what they want at you know, very close to the end and they're having to redo everything. And and I think the other thing is, is this. When you're doing a movie on this massive scale and if you're not a director who necessarily even has a very clear vision of exactly what you want to see on screen so you can tell the artist what you're looking for, you also end up in... So it's this this like cluster of a problem that happens um, which is why, and we've talked about it on Snyder Cuts, why a director like Zack Snyder, who has a very clear vision and has a very distinct style, mm-hmm. knows exactly what he wants things to look like, and I think that's why his movies turn out so well visually and so consistently, because he knows exactly what he's looking for from the VFX artist, as much as he did when he was on set. So let me ask you this then, right? Because we know that... um the, the director, uh, Destin Daniel Cretton, it has been tapped for future entries in the MCU, at least according to the things that I've read. Uh, aside from Shang-Chi 2, I see that he's listed as the director for Avengers the Kang Dynasty. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, knowing that, do you see that he gets those jobs because he's so stellar at what he accomplishes with Shang-Chi or the balance of he can get good performances and deliver on time because Marvel, this is not a fault of, of Cretton. This is not a fault. I'm not throwing this on him. But he understands the Marvel demand of if you got to sacrifice some quality of these visual shots, let it slide. Like, is this, is this something where you're excited by the idea that he is directing a future tentpole Avengers, the Kang dynasty based on all of the data that we have right now, he is directing that movie based on Mm -hmm. what we know. Does it excite you seeing this movie that he's going to get that? The way that it excited me right. to hear that the Rousseau brothers were being given Avengers Infinity War 
And I said, oh. Right. Oh, well, they did Winter Soldier. Oh, yeah. That. Same reaction? What's interesting about him is that he directed Short Term 12 and Just Mercy, uh, both movies starring Brie Larson, and both movies I think she was phenomenal in. Um, and those, both of those are smaller character-driven pieces, um, which is, you know, when I think of Shang-Chi and I think of the characterization, especially we're talking about with the actors and their interactions together, and I think even just the way all the characters in this movie interact with one another uh, and their stories and their, you know, internal feelings being processed on the outside for us to see, I think he does all of that really well as a director. Um, but when you're thinking of doing... Avengers the Kang Dynasty you're thinking this is going to be a monster film when it comes to scope and feel which I don't I don't know if I feel like he has the chops to bring that to screen now this movie may have really helped kind of give him some good experience so that when he gets to that movie he's much more comfortable and let's hope too you know the fact that it's coming out it's supposed to come out in 2025 um that he's got a lot of work and prep time to put into it so that we can really do something special there so no it's not like the Rousseau brothers like you where i was like oh heck yes i just can't wait for that because i know they're gonna do a bang up job i'm i'm more like Okay, possibly. We'll see. But it's not an excitement level like when they, you know, announced that the Russo brothers were doing Infinity War and Endgame together. So But I think that's I think that's fair. And it's it it's not a knock on him. It's this is this is something where I think I put myself in a mindset of why did Marvel see this and decide this is mm-hmm. our guy? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a really good question. So I look at this and I think that it is specifically because Marvel understands that they have a director here who can get good performances from people and not be a prima donna about how the effects look. Yeah. And therefore deliver what Kevin Feige wants, which is on time, on budget, with fun characters that people like. Mm -hmm. Which, I like what Simu Liu does here. I like what Aquafina does here. I like what Michelle Yeoh does here. I like what Tony Lung Chuai does here. I like, you know, Ben Kingsley. So there is unquestionably a... Director who knows how to work with actors. Mm -hmm. I agree. But at the same time, deliver something on Mm -hmm. schedule and on budget. And that's what Marvel wants. That's it. They don't want somebody to upset the apple cart. They want somebody who knows how to deliver what they're looking for that will simultaneously please audiences enough that they'll get their billion dollars at the end of the day. I want to ask you one last thing uh, just before we get to ratings and um, 
you know, this is a, a movie to which, you know, we are kind of celebrating uh, the beauty and the culture of what China has to offer, especially historically. Uh, and you're really trying to tap into that through lots of different ways. But definitely with the music, you in the soundtrack, you want to be do, able to do that. And Joel P. West is is our composer. And how did you feel about the score, especially much like Black Panther, you know, you're trying to create the sound of a whole new part of the MCU. It's fine. There was nothing about this score that lit me up, but there was nothing about this score where, you know, there are movies I've watched where I'm like, this score is not like the the gold standard. You know, I, I, I talked about how handling flashbacks of training and stuff like that. The gold standard is Christopher Nolan with Batman Begins the the inverse of the gold standard or whatever is James Horner's score for Commando is the most out of place ridiculously bad score in a in in in, in an action movie that I've ever heard so on that scale this is fine there's nothing about this that makes me want to listen to it again and but there's nothing about it that's so offensively bad that I'm going to mock it it's like it's there it's good enough it's fine does what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. I think it does a pretty good job. Um, it, it's one that I have listened to, you know, after the film, and you know, I I enjoy it. Um, it it actually just makes for you know, like if you're working or whatever, it's it's not it's it's good background music. Uh, I think I enjoyed just kind of the theme they created for. The Ten Rings, Tallow, that was fun. Um, and, but yeah, I agree with you in the sense that, like, you know, it's not blowing your socks off. And, it, it you know, it, it it's not, you know, John Williams, as we're recording today, just turned 91. You know, it's not John Williams, you know, <laughs> like, it, it's not doing that thing where it created a theme so memorable you can't stop humming it. Um, and, you know. Uh, the MCU has had some of those and then it's not had some of those. So this one's kind of in the middle for me, which in all honesty, when you're doing this many movies, uh, this is the 30th episode of uh, Assembling Avengers. That's a lot of music that you've been putting into these films. So, um, you know, the fact that this one's like, yeah, it's it's good. It's probably not a bad thing by this point, I guess. That's a pretty good thing. It's a good place to be. Well, John, what are your ratings then for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings? You know, there is a part of me that initially gave it, was giving it a two and a half, which is just, it's dead center of the road. But then I thought about it and I'm like, what, is this something I would watch again? Like a two and a half is usually something where it's like, you know, I'm okay. I will give this a three. Because this is something that I could conceivably watch again, and I could see my opinion of it improving. Maybe I'm, maybe when I watched it, I was overly tired. Maybe I was cranky for some reason, and maybe that that sort of weighted my score. So instead of a two and a half, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a three. So with you know, three out of five rings, eh, you know. 
it's not bad. It's not stellar, mm-hmm. but it's also, it, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it's, well, you know, we can talk about it when we get to my, my overall yeah. ranking. You know, I remember the trailer had left me very cold for this film. And so I just kind of came into it that way. And I found that this movie won me over. I liked the performances. I thought it... The thing I I came away most from this movie is that I enjoyed watching it because, you know, phase four to this point had been so worried about being so connected to everything that came before. And this felt more like phase one and two where I could just come in watch a fun movie be introduced to a character and honestly like you didn't need to see any other Marvel movies to enjoy this film that's the first time in a really long time that I could say that and so I give this four out of five uh, rings because I was uh, it just and and even rewatching it I just found myself still enjoying it I was still kind of chuckling at places you know with a good joke here and there and I think that's the other thing is that this movie's humor is not over the top and like that's it, true I'll give you that it, it that yeah. is absolutely true and that's another place where that's why I give Aquafina so many uh points is because you know like I was saying we expect this humor but it's delivered well. It's done well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, uh, no, this one just uh, really surprised me, which I'm really fascinated then to see, John, where this fits in the rankings for you for the MCU so far. Oh, boy. Okay. Let me take the deep breath <gasps> and prepare to go. <gasps> Number one remains Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Will it ever be deposed? I don't think so. Iron Man 3, Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, Iron Man, Avengers Endgame, Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy, Doctor Strange, Loki, Captain America, Civil War, Captain America, the First Avenger, Ant-Man and the Wasp, the Incredible Hulk, the red-headed stepchild of the Marvel franchise that needs to be rehabilitated and brought in. Come on, guys. Avengers Infinity War. This is tough. Thor, then Shang-Chi. But I can foresee a situation where I rewatch the Shang-Chi and that inverts. Mm, okay. I could see that happening. Then Spider-Man Homecoming, then the Avengers, then Howard the Duck, then WandaVision, and everybody who gets listed from here on out after Howard the Duck should really be ashamed of themselves. So Howard the Duck, WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Spider-Man Far From Home, blech. Thor the Dark World, eh. Iron Man 2, blech. Thor Ragnarok, Avengers Age of Ultron, Black Widow, and still at the bottom, Captain Marvel. What about you, Matt? <laughs> well, I've got uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, Iron Man, Iron Man 3, Captain America Civil War, uh, I've got Avengers Endgame, Captain America the First Avenger, Black Panther, Guardians 2, Ant-Man, 
Doctor Strange, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Hmm. The Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man Homecoming, Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man of the Wasp, Loki, Avengers, Spider-Man Far From Home, Avengers Infinity War, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Thor The Dark World, Iron Man 2, Thor, Howard the Duck, Black Widow, Age of Ultron, Captain Marvel, WandaVision, Thor Ragnarok. And again, I think also with your listing, everybody who comes in after Howard the Duck, a universally reviled film, (laughs) should really be ashamed. You should sit in the corner and think about what you did. Exactly. Exactly. How dare you? Uh, But, John, uh, when you're not talking about assembling Avengers, where can people catch up with you? Oh, nobody wants to catch up with me, Matt. But if they feel so inclined to pass by and see somebody they want to block, they can look for Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. I'm on your social network of choice. Most fun place is, of course, going to be Letterboxd because how can you be controversial there except when you curb stomp movies that somebody else loves? And, of course, you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting two shows. One show is called House Lights, where we look at the work of directors, blah, 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 with Tristan Riddell, Darren Moser. And you can find me co-hosting a delightful Star Wars podcast called Aggressive Negotiations with one Mr. Matthew Rushing. And it is delightful, so I hope people I think will so. check that out. Uh, of course, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, Vero is where I'm most uh, active. And of course, you can also find me here in the main 602 Club feed with all of the adventures happening in the 602 Club. Uh, and then I'm also doing the literary tracks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Strange New Worlds. And Star Trek Picard is coming back, so you want to check out the Artificial Tango as Chris and I break all of that down. And then when I wasn't doing aggressive negotiations with John over on the Nerd Party, I have a completed show there called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman where he talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But thank you so much for joining us. West Coast Avengers! West Coast Avengers!